Leah's story invites us to be people after God's own heart. It invites us to love the people in our lives for who they are, not for what they can do for us. You're listening to the Holy Joys Sermon Podcast. Visit us at holyjoys.org to find more resources for a holy, happy church. Genesis chapter 29, beginning at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf and even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach 
and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Leah sat by a pool of still water, basking in the bright morning sun. She could see her reflection in the water below. Leah didn't like to see herself, especially her eyes. She hated her dim, lazy eyes. Rachel had always been the pretty one. Rachel had the perfect figure. Rachel had the perfect features. Rachel was the one that all the men liked. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Leah was the firstborn, but for as long as she could remember, her sister was the center of attention. Leah threw a stone into the water, dispersing her image, and began to weep. Tonight was the night that Rachel would be married. Jacob had worked for seven years to pay the bride price for her. They seemed to Jacob but a few days because of the love that he had for her. They seemed to Leah like an eternity. Each day was a reminder that she, the firstborn, had been passed over for her younger, prettier sister. The message was clear, unwanted. Leah was no one's prize. Leah splashed some water on her face. Pull it together, she told herself. Don't let anyone see. It was time to hurry home. Laban had called everyone together for a great marriage feast. On the way, Leah stopped to pick a few white flowers for her hair, hoping against hope that someone at the party would notice her. No one did. Later that evening, Leah overheard Jacob telling Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Finally, Leah thought, I'll be free of my sister. But just then, Leah felt a firm hand on her arm. It was Laban. He practically dragged her behind the tent. Listen, daughter, you'll do as I say. Go into your cousin Jacob. Go now. Say nothing. Let him have his way with you. He must not know until morning that you are not Rachel. You are not Rachel. The words rung through her ears. Leah felt sick to the stomach. Her heart beat louder than all the laughter and music from the party. Leah, are you listening to me? Yes, father, she stammered and began dragging her feet towards Jacob's tent. She had no choice. In the tent, Leah felt violated. And every time that Jacob touched her, she thought of Rachel. What would Rachel say? What would happen in the morning? Would Jacob keep her as a wife or leave her behind? Damaged goods. Her mind raced. At some point in the night, long after Jacob had fallen asleep, she wept silently and passed out from exhaustion. Leah woke to the sound of shouting. What have you done to me? Why have you deceived me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Leah heard her sister's name loud and clear. I served you for Rachel. Jacob could have just as well said, not Leah, not the one with the fat face and lazy eyes. Leah wrapped herself in blankets trying to hide her body. For six more days, Jacob would come into her every night, not because he loved her, but because she was a temporary replacement for Rachel. Jacob had agreed to work seven more years for her. And in the meantime, Leah felt like a Rachel doll, as if Jacob was pretending that she was her sister. 
Soon Jacob would have the real thing and Leah would be cast off into a corner like a toy that a child had outgrown. She would be the co-wife of her cousin, a man who didn't love her, a man who didn't want her. But as the days, years, and months wore on, something happened. Or rather, something didn't happen. Rachel didn't get pregnant. Sometimes when Jacob was frustrated, he would come into Leah, and Leah would hope and pray that she would be the first one to conceive. That would solve all of her problems, Leah thought. After all, childbearing was everything to her family. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, the great patriarch to whom God had promised a family as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. Through his seed, blessing would come to all nations. And since the salvation of the world depended on the birth of a child, infertility had to be overcome. It was a constant struggle for Israel's matriarchs. Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. And now Rachel was barren. Leah expected that the Lord would open Rachel's womb as he had opened Sarah and Rebecca's. Everyone favored Rachel. Surely the Lord would favor her too. But scripture says that the Lord saw that Leah was hated. When Hagar had been cast into the wilderness, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For Hagar said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The Lord saw Leah. He saw Leah as no one had ever seen her before. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord was more of a husband to her than Jacob had ever been. And instead of choosing Rachel to bear the firstborn, God chose Leah and opened her womb. When the baby was born, Leah called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. All that Leah ever wanted was to be loved, to be cherished, to be nurtured, to be cared for. Surely Jacob would love her now. But though he was attentive during the pregnancy, his affection soon wore off and Leah felt lonelier than before. She just wanted to be pregnant again. When her second son was born, she named him Simeon because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. When her third son was born, Leah was still holding out hope that things would change, that things would get better. She named him Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Now this time, Leah thought, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. As we read Genesis 29, a part of his hopes that Leah is right, that Jacob will have a change of heart, But many of us also know, sometimes from our own experience, that love can't be earned. And no matter how hard we try, some people will never show us the love that we deserve. When Leah's fourth son was born, it seemed to signal a change in Leah. 
Maybe she was just feeling especially grateful to the Lord that day. Maybe she had just given up for a time on winning Jacob's affection. But when she conceived again and bore a son, she named him Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew for praise, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. There's no mention of her affliction. There's no mention of her husband's affection. And as we know, Judah, not Reuben, the firstborn, would be chosen by God to continue the messianic line. I wish that the story got better from here, but we know, we read it, it only gets worse. Six sons later, this is the verse that I couldn't get away from this week, six sons later, we learn that Leah is still holding on to hope that her husband will love and honor her. She says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now, my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Leah's story is a sad reminder that in a sinful world, many people spend their entire lives trying to earn love in their relationships. Women often feel that if they could just be prettier, lose enough weight, have enough children, land the right job, then someone, maybe their husband, would really see them, love them, and honor them. There's never an excuse to get involved in an extramarital affair. It's never justified, but it is often explainable. So many people who are longing for love and affection from their spouse end up finding it in the workplace or somewhere else, and it's, it's a strong temptation. Some women go their entire marriage trying to earn their husband's affection, just waiting for a tender touch or an I love you. But it's not just a struggle for women. Many men also feel unwanted, inadequate, and ashamed. Men struggle, too, with feeling like they aren't really loved valued or respected and they think that if they just work harder make more money be more athletic get a better build climb the corporate ladder then someone will really see them love them and respect them and so often this goes back to a childhood in which the mother or father did not show them that kind of love that they needed So many relationships, so many marriages are starved of genuine love and respect. Genuine intimacy is replaced by harsh words, lost tempers, defensive posturing, petty accusations, and subtle manipulation. Trust breaks down, resentment settles in, and sex becomes about little more than satisfying one's own desires and goals. One of the parts of that story that makes me sad, but also kind of makes me laugh, is when Jacob comes in and Rachel says, I have bought you with my son's mandrakes. You must come lie with me. They're throwing their servants at their husband. They're so desperate for children. And when love and intimacy breaks down in a relationship, sex becomes commodified. That's what we see in our culture today with pornography and prostitution. Sex becomes a commodity. It becomes all about me and satisfying my desires instead of a beautiful expression of the spousal union, of real loving intimacy. This is a side note, but this is an area in which we as the church in our day need our mind to be renewed. We've been exposed to so much of it, sometimes just secondhand, that it begins to warp and change our own mind and our own way of thinking about human sexuality, which God calls very good. Another side note is that we need to talk to our children and grandchildren about this. 
I want my son to be the first one that hears the word sex from my lips, not from someone at a public school or out in the world or on a video or a movie. I want him to know what sex really is. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to blush about. It's sacred and it's holy and we don't take it lightly, but it's not something perverted. It's not something about satisfying our own goals and desires. It's not a commodity. We're not to use one another and objectify one another for our own selfish purposes. And when that happens in a marriage, it's a sign that there's something deeply unhealthy in that relationship. The sin on the surface is often a symptom of secret sin or the baggage of past sins. Sin always damages our relationships. And in a culture that no longer views marriage as a sacred covenant till death do us part, it's no wonder that roughly half of all marriages end in divorce. If Leah and Rachel were married to Jacob today, it might be a very different story. As sad as Leah's story is, as much as it grieves our heart to read about the way that Jacob treated her and the way that her own father treated her, there is a glimmer of hope in this passage because it reminds us also, secondly, of our only comfort and hope, God's unconditional love. Our passage reminds us that God sees the unseen. God wants the unwanted. God favors the forgotten, and he receives the rejected. When the world writes unwanted, God writes wanted. He did far more than work seven years for us. The bride price that he paid was his own blood shed on the cross to purchase a bride for himself. He will never leave us nor forsake us. God is like Jesus not like Jacob. God is like Jesus, not like Jacob. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, unlovely, unwanted, undesirable, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 7 tells married couples that we're not to withhold our bodies from one another, but we're to freely and lovingly give our bodies to the other. And that this too is an image of Christ in the church, how Christ gives his body to his people, how he offers it willingly for them and for their sake. I couldn't help but think of the Lord's Supper as I prepared this, that every week in the Lord's Supper, Christ freely offers his body to us afresh and anew. Tim Chester writes that in the Lord's Supper, we receive the bridegroom's kiss upon our lips in the bread and the wine. When no one else sees us, he sees us and comes into us and becomes not one flesh but one spirit with us. This is a tragic story, but the light in the darkness is that God saw Leah and he sees you this morning. If you feel like no one else sees you, God sees you. He favors the unfavorable. He blesses those who the world has forgotten about. Finally, Leah's story invites us to be people after God's own heart. It invites us to love the people in our lives for who they are, not for what they can do for us. Do the people in your life know that you love them for who they are, 
not for what they can do for you? Or do those people feel like they have to earn your love and attention and affirmation? Do you really see the people in your own life? Or are you oblivious to the pain, hurt, insecurity, and anxiety that they carry with them every single day? Now, if you grew up in a healthy home, those might be easy questions to answer. But I've met people who have never told their spouse in all their marriage, I love you. Who rarely ever touch their spouse in a non-sexual way, hold their hands, rub their back, very little attention or affirmation, never compliment their spouse. And it's very easy to hear that and just judge those people. But then you often learn that they grew up in a home where their dad never said, I love you or their mom never said, I love you. And hurt people hurt people. And so this morning, I know these questions are easy to ask. It may be hard for you to receive, depending on your own hurts and baggage and experiences. And if I can help you in any way, I'd be happy to do that, to try, or to recommend someone to to help you work through some of your own struggles. But I want to encourage you when you get home today or, or in this week to pray about it, to think about it, taking time to look at your spouse or look at people in your life, your family, your children, and let them know that you love them. Tell them, I love you for who you are, not for what you can do. Tell them, you don't have to earn my love. I just want you to know that. I want you to know I see you. I want you. And I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. We might be surprised how many people in our lives are starving to hear that. And who are jumping from relationship to relationship or from sin to sin, trying to find satisfaction. It doesn't excuse their sin, but it does help to explain it. One of the ways in which we love our neighbor and love our family and help one another is by speaking God's own unconditional love into their lives, being the hands and feet of Jesus in our marriages, in our relationship, and in the church. These are words that the Lord has spoken to us in the gospel. And they are words that our world is dying to hear. This morning, let's stand for prayer as we prepare to meet our loving bridegroom at his table. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.